Turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 8. New Testament scriptures, Matthew chapter 8. Began looking at this section two weeks ago. Missed it last week because of the snow, but we'll continue here in Matthew 8 and 9, trying to look at these two chapters as a whole. What's the big idea here? What's the main point Matthew's trying to make? And then how does each little paragraph or section contribute to that? So let me pray for us and then we'll read from a section of verses from Matthew chapter 8 here. Pray with me. Father in heaven, again, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for the word of God, how we love your word and your kingdom, as we just sang. And truly, your word is not bound. It can prevail, and it can go forth powerfully, and it can do the work of the church. I pray that would happen tonight. And as we think of it on a big scale like that, you're building your church. will help us also to think right here in, in this room, whatever our needs may be, wherever we need that guidance from you to, to be corrected or to be encouraged and all of the above. Do that for us. And help us to yield to you and make Christ be precious, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. This is the first section we'll look at tonight, so let's read that one. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Amen for God's word. Well, as we've come to these two chapters, they, they form another chunk in our study of Matthew that we've gone through progressively throughout the years, never as a dedicated study, but jumping into some of these sections along the way. Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's asking questions that Mark and his gospel ask. Who is this Jesus? What response should we make to him? And Matthew answers that question with a strong Old Testament framework. He wants to show how Jesus fulfills all those promises and prophecies of the Old Testament and that we should therefore follow him as Messiah, Son of God, Lord, King of the Kingdom. Chapters 1 and 2 show him fulfilling prophecies specifically, all those birth narratives and early stories. Chapters 3 and 4 present Jesus as a perfect Israel. He's baptized. He goes through the waters and then out into the wilderness to be tempted. But unlike Israel of old, he prevails. And chapters 5 through 7 show him as a new Moses, fulfilling the law, teaching what God wants his people to do. Not only teaching, 
But it's hinted at even there in the Sermon on the Mount, obeying it in our place. And then the next section, the one we're focusing on now, chapters 8 and 9, which focus on Jesus' authority. That was the response people had coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. He, he taught them as one who had authority. So that one with authority now goes out and about through the land of Judea and he exercises his authority through word and deed. He teaches and he heals. He teaches and he casts out demons. He invites people into the kingdom and he banishes sickness and disease. This one who taught on the mountain with the authority of Moses now goes throughout the land with authority and it is the very authority of God. Jesus is God and chapters 8 and 9 demonstrate his authority in action. God exercising divine authority through this Jesus. And if you remember, I know it's been a few weeks, but the method we decided to do is rather than just going through it uh, paragraph by paragraph, we, we would try to group these stories in a way that brought out these different spheres of authority. So last time, very simply, we looked at Jesus' authority over ill health, all the healing stories, and Jesus' authority over sin, how he uses the ministry of healing to show that he has the right to forgive sin. So the healing is a means to an end. Now, I don't want to make it sound cheap as if he didn't care about the people. He did. He was, he was merciful. He relieved them of their miseries and suffering. But he didn't merely come to provide healing, it was healing pointing to an even greater healing. The forgiveness of sins and the salvation of the soul, which would lead to a new resurrection and a new heavens and a new earth, where there would be the complete banishment of sin from God's creation, thus no more curse, no more sickness, no more effects of sin. We show that authority. Well, tonight I want to look at three more spheres of authority, and beginning with this idea of Jesus' authority over who enters the kingdom. Who enters the kingdom? Now, forgive me, I, I phrased that wrongly. One sphere of authority. His authority over who enters the kingdom. But an authority we will see brought out in three different stories. Now again, here's how these stories work. You'll have a section like what we're looking at tonight, chapter 8, 5 through 11. Where the focus of the story is a healing. Jesus has authority to heal the centurion's servant from afar. But having healed the servant, he uses that as an opportunity to talk about who will enter the kingdom. So once again, it's one level of authority bearing witness to an even greater level of authority. Who enters the kingdom? And then what we will see is that topic, who enters the kingdom? Well, Jesus returns to that theme several times in these two chapters. So it kind of gets us into another cluster of stories. Jesus' authority over who enters the kingdom. And let's look at that then in all the different ways it comes out. So the story we read tonight is where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. He does it from afar. The centurion says, hey, I've got people under me. I have authority. So I recognize you have authority. I have authority over my soldiers. You have authority over disease. So just say the word and the disease will be banished. Well, the centurion's faith in Jesus and his confession of faith in Jesus' authority, it amazes Jesus and provokes from Jesus this declaration regarding who will and who will not enter God's kingdom. It's the verses there right in the middle of the story, verses 11 
through 13. And notice what Jesus says as he begins to discuss who will enter the kingdom. In verse 10, we have the record of Jesus' amazement at this centurion's belief that Jesus can heal the servant from a distance. And that leads to Jesus discussing this end-time banquet. Verse 11 says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now what Jesus is doing is on one level simply setting before them an image of heaven, an image of the end times, an, an image of life after death, so to speak. But not necessarily when they immediately died, but the final resurrection when God puts all things right. What's it going to be like? Well, they understood from their Old Testament scriptures that there would be a feast. God's reign would come and we would all sit down at the table. Isaiah 25 uh, describes this in some details. And there would be the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they would be seated there at the head of the table. And we would all come and feast with him. Now, the Jewish mindset that emerged over time from those scriptures and, and, and through the years between the Old and the New Testaments, the mindset that gradually emerged was, okay, we, Israel, God's people after the flesh, will be the ones there at the table. And the non-Jews, well, they're going to be outside the feast. They're going to be in the outer darkness. You know that language from later in Matthew. They don't get to come in. To the celebration because they're not God's people. God's people are the Jews. But notice how Jesus shakes up the guest list. He says many will come from the east and the west. Meaning many are coming from outside of Israel. Foreigners are coming to this end time feast. And not only are foreigners getting to come inside the feast and sit down at the table, but notice also he says in verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Who are the subjects of the kingdom? The Jewish people. So many Gentiles will come in, many Jews will be thrown outside. And that's language, again, thrown outside. That's the language usually reserved for the Gentiles. But this time it's the Jews. Who don't get to come in. And why? Why would they be excluded from the feast? Well, the context implies because they don't have faith like this centurion. The centurion is a Roman soldier. So he's almost certainly a Gentile. Those who should have been ripe fruit for the picking, who should have been prepared by the Old Testament and ready to receive Jesus for various reasons that, that we've explored at other times, had blinders on, couldn't see that he was the Savior. And they didn't have faith like the centurion. And so therefore, Jesus is saying, they will not come into the end time feast. Those who believe, those are the true children of Abraham, not those who merely descend from him. Now, side note, you could have gotten that from the Old Testament. It's not like the Old Testament said, all right, yeah, the Jews are going in, and suddenly the New Testament says, no, that's wrong. You could have got it from the Old Testament, that those who have faith are children of Abraham, and that's what Paul does there in Romans 9. But Jesus is making it crystal clear. Those who have faith enter the kingdom. Acts eleven eighteen reads similarly. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
some writers phrase it sometimes by saying, as you come to the New Testament, you have to ask, what time is it? It's the time for the Gentiles to come in. And that's how you know that God's kingdom has come. And the Jews couldn't see that. Now, they had more faults than just that. It wasn't that they were merely uh, excluding outsiders. But that was one thing they didn't see. That those who had faith in Jesus would come in. Jesus is the true Israel. So as you are related to the true Israel, so you are Israel too. And that Israel comes into God's end time kingdom. So that's the thought. But what makes it so amazing is who has the right to say things like that? Only God. And so that's why this statement bears witness to Jesus' divine authority. Jesus says, I'll tell you who comes into the kingdom and who doesn't. I'll be the one to exercise control over the gates there. Well, that's God. Only God gets to say who does and doesn't come into his kingdom. And so in this first story with the centurion, Jesus demonstrates that kind of authority. Now let's come to the next story, because like I said, there's several uh, paragraphs here in the two chapters that have a similar theme and thought, so they kind of cluster together. Uh, skip down to verses 18 through 22, where we will again see Jesus' authority over who enters the kingdom. We see it in two potential followers of Jesus. Let's read about the first potential follower in verses 18 through 20. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders across to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now here's what's going on geographically. Notice verse 18. He's giving orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So they're probably going into a more a predominantly Gentile area, sometimes called the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. And those who are Jewish may not be comfortable continuing with Jesus. They, you know, we're going to go that Gentile area. I don't know if that's what I signed up for. But remarkably, a teacher of the law wants to go. Going into enemy territory, this scribe, this teacher of the law says, let me follow you as you get into the boat and go on the other side. It was very common in Jesus' day for scribes, teachers, to want to follow their rabbis. Jewish teachers who explained the law, they would gather to themselves disciples, scribes, and they would travel as a group. On, on one level, what Jesus says there is not out of the ordinary at all. It's when he starts defining himself as God and his followers as the new Israel that the scandals begin to come. But this scribe is thinking, okay, you're, you're like other rabbis, and, and you say some good things, and hey, that's a Gentile area, but come on, let's go. And Jesus' words are going to challenge him to think, I don't know if you thought that all the way through. I don't know if you thought about where that commitment is going to take you. You like the start of the path, but do you know where the path will end? And Jesus tells them what the path will be like. It will be a place where you may not even have somewhere to lay your head. If you follow me, it'll be an itinerant lifestyle. Now, I want you to think about Jesus' upbringing. He was the carpenter's son, brought up there in Nazareth. So on one level, Jesus could have had a secure place in society. He could have inherited Joseph's business and established business and been just fine. I'm speaking, of course, from the human perspective. But he left all that behind to go throughout Israel and to preach the good news and to announce the coming of God's kingdom. And that means 
They don't know at times where they're going to lodge for the night. They'll be completely dependent on the hospitality of those who welcome their message. In fact, in verse 24, we will find Jesus sleeping in a boat. So there's no guarantee it's going to be a nice journey. Jesus says there, foxes have dens, birds have nests, the son of man. Well, I have no place to lay my head. And that phrase, son of man, I've highlighted it often. Sometimes it's uh, building on Daniel 7, this divine being. He comes with heavenly authority. But son of man is also sometimes used in the Old Testament simply to refer to human beings, particularly in their weakness. So Ezekiel 2 does this. Son of man, get up on your feet. Son of man, I'll give you the words. You're just a human. You're weak. But I'll enable you. That's probably how Jesus uses it here. Not saying he's not God, but just, hey, I'm humiliated right now. I'm in the time of my humiliation. And if you go with me, there's no guarantee of any good journey. Humiliation comes before exaltation. So that's one potential follower. And here's the second potential follower in verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now notice how verse 21 describes him as another disciple, not, not one of the 12. You, you've got capital D disciples and lowercase d disciples, a larger entourage that kind of came and went throughout these years with Jesus. So this guy may have been following Jesus for a little bit, but now he says, okay, well, if we're about to go to another side and, and this is going to be more of a long-term thing, let me go bury my father. Now, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And immediately we are wondering, all right, what kind of command is this? Here's how it usually lands with us. The father has just died, like maybe hours ago. And they're just waiting to put him in the ground, just inter this body. And that's all this son wants to do. This basic, you know, filial duty, something that Jewish custom demanded that in fact, Jewish custom said, you, you do that before you do your prayers. You know, get the body in the ground. We would even think this is fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. So Jesus' response just seems shocking. And not just shocking as if it offends our sensibilities. It, it almost seems wrong, right? Like This almost seems like a contradiction with sacred scripture. Well, what do we do when we read things like that in the Bible? What we want to avoid, certainly is taming Jesus. We don't want to domesticate him. We don't want to take the teeth out. I mean, these commands sting us for a reason. But at the same time, or before I say that, you know, they make us chafe. So we think, well, let me get this thing down to a standard I can keep. That's our temptation. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, if our objection is rooted in Scripture, it almost seems that Jesus is contradicting Scripture. Well, then... Certainly, we could try to make the right judgment on how these two go together. There's one author, uh, Kenneth Bailey, I believe is his name. And apparently, he has lived in this culture, observed uh, this culture. So he's tried to get an insider's look on culture in this area and say, okay, what might Jesus' words mean? And here's what he says. If the father had just died, the son could hardly be out at the roadside with Jesus. His place was to be keeping vigil and preparing 
for the funeral. Now, there's a line of thought I never thought about before I studied this passage. It calls him a disciple. He's been walking with Jesus. So it's kind of odd that he'd be like, hey, I'm out here with you, Jesus, even though my dad's dead. So now I want to go home and, and bury him. That's where we start thinking, okay, maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's not a dad who just died. So Bailey makes this point. Rather, to bury one's father is a standard idiom for fulfilling your domestic responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime with no prospect of his imminent death. In other words, he's saying, let me live out my duties as a good son. And then when my father dies, I'll come follow you. Again, one last quote. This would then be a request for indefinite postponement of discipleship, likely to be for years rather than days. Thus, it's not a very serious commitment to discipleship. And I think that's getting at the right answer. Again, we don't want to take the teeth out of Jesus' words. But it makes sense if he's already standing over Jesus, his dad wouldn't be at home dead. Otherwise, based on his own words, he would want to be there caring for his father. Sounds more like, while Jesus is local, he'll follow. But when it's time to go to the other side and make a long-term commitment, hey, let me go home and, and do this stuff first. Maybe I'm trying to dress it up uh, as something morally acceptable. But Jesus is basically going to say, I see through those words. I see an excuse. I see you failing to make the right kind of commitment to me. And why is there a lack of commitment? This potential disciple is allowing family ties to stand in the way of his devotion to the kingdom. And by the way, when we talk about not taking the teeth out of Jesus' words, that's still a pretty tough declaration, isn't it? Don't let even family ties keep you from being loyal to Jesus. You cannot allow your commitment to your family to keep you from following and obeying Jesus. Now let me give this caveat because I've seen it in ministry. Be careful that doesn't get expressed and lived out selfishly. All right, I have seen people who, saying I'm being loyal to Jesus, were very poor in their duty to love their family. And you know, maybe church work was just much more exciting than doing what you needed to do to those whom God gave in your family. So don't do this selfishly. It can be done selfishly. But there are also those who are thinking, oh, will my family be okay with this? Yeah, what will they think if I want to go to church and be loyal to Jesus? And Jesus is saying, you cannot let that pressure keep you from doing it. I'll steal this story because I heard it yesterday at, at Presbytery. There was a man who was 44, and he became a Christian, and he was en route to becoming the next big leader at General Electric when he became a Christian. Now, his wife was very antagonistic to Christianity, and he was so worried about that, he would hide in his office at <laughs> night and study his Bible and pray. And finally, she came to him, and she said, you know what, you go in that office every night, I hear you talking to someone. Now all of a sudden you're nicer and you're kind. Are, are you being unfaithful to me? She thought he was in there on the phone with another woman. And he said, I have become a Christian and I love Jesus. And that is what I'm doing there, reading the Bible and talking to God. And even though she was antagonistic to the faith, she eventually became a believer. And their children became believers too. He just died. They had his funeral yesterday. What a beautiful story of God saving a household. But what if she hadn't come around? What if she said, well, don't go in there and read your Bible. Don't go pray. Don't waste your time going to church. He would have had to say, Jesus comes first. That's the commitment that Jesus 
is asking for. And it is consistent with his demands all throughout this gospel. That language of hate father and mother, it means your loyalty to me outpaces by far your loyalty to anyone else. Let the dead bury the dead, Jesus says. And he's probably making a little play on words here. There's a spiritually dead generation here in this land. Leave them alone. Leave them to themselves. A disciple's business is with life, not with death. And you know what? There's some fanaticism there. But it is a dedication that our Savior deserves because he saves us from death that we would come to if we followed down that path. Now the ideal, as Paul instructs us in his letters, is, hey, lead your family spiritually. Bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and let the family row together. But if that doesn't happen, Jesus says, my authority comes first. Last area we see his authority is in the calling of Matthew in verses 9 through 13, where he calls Matthew to follow him and then goes to that party at Matthew's house. And the big deal here isn't so much, okay, look at this big event that he, that he called Matthew. I mean, that's a big deal. But basically what, what Jesus says here in the wake of that is where we see his authority come through. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So Matthew's probably something like a customs agent. Uh, looking at the geography here, this is probably a border town. It's on a lake. So as goods are being brought from another town on the boats with their cargo, well, that's where the tax collectors set up shop. They tax these incoming goods. And these tax collectors were hated. You've heard that before. Uh, you know, they, they took more than they needed to take. Rome said, hey, you take this amount and give it to us. Whatever else you take beyond that, that's your pocket for your trouble. So they typically overcharged to pad their own pockets. And of course, they were viewed as disloyal. Often these were Jews collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. So they're unpatriotic. They're unspiritual. They're serving the enemy. And they're generally despised. So not only would Pharisees struggle when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. Just kind of your ordinary Jews might really say, Wow, you're going to call this kind of person? To join your disciples, such a morally and religiously suspect person. Interestingly, as Jesus goes to Matthew and says, follow me, Matthew doesn't seem bothered to join the preacher's group. You know, you, some people are sometimes shy. I've, I've never darkened the door of a church. I mean, Matthew, he just lays down and gets right on board. And as he goes about now following Jesus, he's invited to a home at Matthew's house in verses 10 and 11. So now Jesus is eating not only with non-Pharisees, but sinful people. If you, if you share a meal with someone, you're basically identifying with them. So here's this Jewish teacher identifying with sinful people in an unclean home. And what does Jesus say? Verse 12, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I want you to go and learn this. It doesn't mean you've never read this verse before. He goes, I want you to go, I want you to think about what scripture is saying here. I want you to get the right sense of this scripture. He quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. That's where the prophet challenges the people of his day. Hey, it's not your ritual. It's not the sacrifices. It's not getting all the details right 
that makes you right with God. You, or you certainly can't do those things and ignore the moral demands of God's covenant. But that's what the Pharisees and others were doing. Their, their legalism, their attention to detail, the rigidity of their human traditions is basically excluding people from God's people who could join those people on the terms of faith and repentance. And Jesus comes to just bust that whole system up and to shake things up. And notice, by the way, Jesus isn't coming to endorse their sin, to leave them where he found them, to say it doesn't matter what you did. He tells Matthew, come, follow me. He calls a sinner, and the point of calling a sinner is to transform the sinner. Matthew will never be the same. He will find true righteousness and reformation of life. But Jesus' point is, you won't find it the Pharisees' way. You can't get there from here. The goal may be good, but the pathway is wrong. They put correct behavior before mercy. And so they do not enter the narrow gate. Jesus says, you come follow me. And you're finding the mercy that God was offering in that passage from the Old Testament. So again, the main point I am putting before you is, who's got the right to do that? Only one. God himself. That God could come in the midst of this crowd and say, I'll tell you who gets into the kingdom. So we ask ourselves these very simple questions in closing based on these three stories. Are we people of faith like the centurion? I mean, do we have that trust in Jesus that he has the authority. You could put all your cares in his hands. All he has to do is speak the word and the need is met. You can trust him. You can rest in him. Are we people of commitment? <clears throat> Unlike those two followers who wanted discipleship on their terms, didn't want it to squeeze them too much. Are you ready? Go through that narrow gate. Keep walking that narrow path in commitment to the Savior. And are we people of mercy? Unlike the Pharisees here, who would not see what God valued above all, but do we, as people who know we need mercy, then show it to others and trust in the mercy of our Savior. He's got the authority, so we can trust Him and serve Him in these ways. Let's give thanks and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified for our sins, to open wide the gates of heaven and help us to follow in that way each day, loving you, serving you, loving others, resting in mercy, being transformed by your calling and delighting in your authority. Thank you for another good Lord's Day to hear your word and to worship with your people. Now send us out this week to go and do your will. And to be faithful there and keep us safe, keep us safe spiritually, help us to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.